<laughs> We're gonna write it down. I had. <laughs> oh my Christ! That's getting edited out. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone, in this episode of The Next Stage, we're going to be speaking with Joe, who's from Chronic Insanity, the Nottingham-based theatre, who have took on the feat of doing 12 shows in 12 months and more. But here's Joe to tell you all about that crazy adventure. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Next Stage. We are joined today by Joe from Chronic Insanity. Hello, you're right. Hey, uh, yeah, all good. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're very, very welcome. Listen, we will jump straight into it. Um, so first things first, um, obviously when it comes to theatre companies, the name is probably the most important. And Chronic Insanity is, <laughs> it, it was probably one of the ones that of all of the companies we've had has made me chuckle the most. And I'm genuinely interested. This is one of our favourite things between Greta and I. How did you come up with the name what's the backstory that's a good question um so i think it's so i mean chronic insanity is a quote from uh the sarah kane play 448 psychosis um the line is about um the full line is the chronic insanity of the sane i think the idea that if you're if you're sane you have to consistently ignore and suppress and kind of see reality in a way that it is not in order to try and maintain your sanity. Um, but the quote in general is sort of tying into lots of other things and it references a length of time, which is roughly as long as the play takes as well. And we were, um, Nat, uh, who was the co-founder of the company with me, um, we were both big into kind of 90s in-your-face theatre, big fans of Kane as well as Philip Ridley and uh, Ashley Nielsen, Mark Ravenhill and plays and playwrights like that. And so we wanted a quote that kind of helped, you know, it was kind of from something quite, you know, obvious in that era, some kind of a play that kind of embodied a lot of that. And we knew that we were going to do 12 shows in 12 months when we formed the company. And we felt like that was a lot of stuff happening and also a thing that lots of people didn't think we'd be able to do or thought we were a bit crazy to try. And so the idea of something being consistently happening and chronic and something being a bit crazy or insanity sort of ended up melding together as well. Um, so yeah, I think that, that, that those are the kind of roots of it. Yeah. Let me tell you, Joe, that is the deepest answer for the name of a theatre company we've, we've ever had. And it is quite a good one. So you just said something that when forming the company, you knew you were going to do, be doing 12 works in 12 months. Where did that idea come from? Like where... What in what state was your mind for you to think, yes, 12 shows in 12 months, I can do that. What's that story? So, me and uh, our co-founder, um, we met at, um, doing student theatre at the University of Nottingham, um, at the Nottingham New Theatre. We'd collaborated a lot. Um, I directed them and I'd produced work that they'd written and directed and we'd worked in a lot of different kind of different kind of you know roles on productions with each other and we knew that we worked well together and wanted to keep making it work but we were starting to kind of come up against the edge of what we could make at a student theatre with um the kind of budgets or from a welfare perspective or fitting within the sort of the kind of politics and the way in which a student theatre can run um it was difficult to get you know um in your face plays put on when everyone else just wanted to do kind of things like uh you know, comedies and student writing, which all have a place, but we wanted to do something else, a bit more kind of gritty and hard-hitting and uh, particular. And we also realised that we didn't need huge budgets to do the shows we wanted to do. And so we could probably kind of go out on our own and start doing stuff. And we were at the National Student Drama Festival in Leicester in 2019. And we were talking to people and we had this idea that we always felt like we could do more work than we were like allowed to do. And we'd seen plenty of shows put on by people just in their spare time in less than four weeks and like two weeks, a week and a half. That were some of the best student theatre things we'd seen, maybe even some of the best theatre that we'd seen up until that point. So we were like, well, I think it's quite easy to do 12 shows in 12 months so long. 
as you pick the right 12 shows that can work next to each other, you're not kind of just picking 12 whatever shows regardless of what they are and you overlap their production so maybe one month you're writing one show casting and rehearsing another and then editing a third if it's a digital piece so they kind of cascade and you're never doing too much of one thing at one time was the theory at least to begin with um and then we saw a a show by katie arnstein called sexy lamp and there's a bit in that show where she quotes a film and the actress character in the film is at a dinner party and someone asks her what she does and she says that's a difficult question to answer because I spend most of my time not doing it and we wanted to spend most of our time being theatre makers and making theatre so I think it's a kind of um, trying to make all of the theatre and all of the ideas that we had knowing that we thought that we could you know get up and make work at that pace at that kind of you know um, that swiftness and also wanting to spend most of our time you're actually making theatre and not kind of spending six months not doing anything and then very slowly getting into production and eventually getting something on if the stars aligned we like we want to kind of you know make our own kind of destiny whether or not be the the you know waiting for an arts council application or if someone's going to give us some in-kind space or if the right performer comes along we're like we've got more ideas let's just do the things that we know we can do right now and if we have to get a show ready by, you know, in a month's time, we're going to sort it out. And we can plan for other things further along the line. But, uh, yeah, that's the kind of rough rough and ready idea of where the 12 shows in 12 months thing came from. To me, it sounds like, um, f- from what I gather, it's like a good exercise in how to program well, then, if that makes sense. Because, like, so, so, so phrase it to me, like, you had... Um, like let's say piece a of physical theater uh, and by physical theater i don't mean the genre i mean a piece of theater in the space um and then piece two of in the space theater and then digital how how is it how did you have like a certain way about going around programming these things or was it just kind of a okay well let's see what we've got and see what we think would work best for the season just out of interest so to begin with, we had a few ideas going into it. We like working with stuff digitally. We like using found spaces and doing immersive work and site-specific stuff. And we started off asking basically anywhere we could around Nottingham if we could perform in spare rooms, you know, above pubs or basements and museums and things. Unfortunately, a lot of venues let us um, do stuff. We did stuff at Wilton Park and the National Justice Museum, um, the Bar Pepper Rocks, Broadway Cinema, all sorts of places opened up spaces for us, which was really lovely. And then we kind of were like, okay, well, we've got, here is the space we have. It's free or very affordable. How can we, what's the shows that fit in these spaces? What shows make sense to do in a 300-year-old jail underneath a museum? And what space makes sense, what show makes sense to do in the room above a bar while the bar is on and is going to be loud and there will be music? Like, what shows fit these spaces? Um, we weren't doing any explicitly digital stuff to begin with. We were recording shows in sort of 180 degree 360 video, knowing that that sort of immersive rewatching might be interesting later. But it was really the pandemic and lockdown, which then made us sort of swatch to a kind of a fully digital thing. But that wasn't too bad because I'd already been doing a PhD, which had been looking at digital theatre and audience participation and interactivity. So we sort of hit the ground running. We repurposed some Arts Council funding, which we just gotten a few weeks before lockdown hit. And we did a full sort of six-show digital season between March and August of 2020. And that really kind of helped us cut our teeth and try loads of different things out and meet a bunch of different people. We did a show that had a cast of like over 50 um, for the August Um so yeah, I think, but you're right, the programming, it's been a very good exercise in trying to balance stuff. We don't want to do a whole load of shows that need lots of time and energy in the space directly one after another, or we will burn out and get exhausted. We want to try and do, you know, if there's a larger cast show, it needs to be balanced either side with a, a digital piece or um, a, a text-based, you know, like a twine interactive thing, or just a monologue or reviving something that we've already rehearsed and we know that we can get back on its feet in a couple of days rather than spending a prolonged period of rehearsing for it. And then balancing all of that with you know logistics and uh, COVID guidelines and finances, the, you know, where's the funding coming from? Do we have it or is this off our own back sort of thing? 
but uh, I guess that is all that all comes under programming, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah, that that plays very nicely into um, my next question, which is um, the the sort of personal impact of creating work on a very regular basis. So, like, how would you say? yourself and Nat and the rest of the Chronic Insanity company kind of helped like balance your creative life with your um yeah with your like personal life and then without risking it like burning out on a practitioner sense rather than from a like making work sense I think it's hard it's difficult to do and I, though I know that I've been able to do it, and I know other people have kind of subbed in and out and done stuff and then headed out and done other stuff. I've been the kind of core artistic driving force for the company for the whole time that I've been doing. I think I've been involved in some way creatively in every project that we've done. So far, at least, that's starting to not be the case, which is great. I'm starting to just produce things and let other people take the reins from a directing and a writing and a performing perspective. Um, but it, it it can be really difficult to carry on doing stuff, particularly because sometimes you're planning towards a thing and then stuff doesn't turn out the way you want it to, and you have to kind of you have to kind of kill your darlings and swallow your pride and just be like, okay, let's let's carry on. Fortunately, there's another thing just on the horizon. That's one of the benefits of doing so much work and having so much in the pipeline is that you don't really. I don't think I've had post show blues for the past three years because as soon as a show's done there's another one around the corner and you might and the people that you've just done a show with you might be working with in another few months already so I mean we have a group of about 20 associate artists um, who are mainly East Midlands based but also based around the UK and occasionally internationally and we have a few other kind of friendly faces that we go back to for particular things time and time again and those pools of people are always growing Um, so there's a lot of artists, performers, uh, technicians and designers, writers that we've worked with time and time again on various projects and yeah which is always really nice to kind of yeah kind of get some funding and then make some work with some friendly faces. Um, It's tricky though because a lot of my time is spent applying for funding to do projects a lot of time is spent applying for funding from lots of different um, areas as well because we do a lot of digital fear is trying to apply for kind of funding more from like a tech perspective sometimes and a creative tech. I spend a lot of time doing consultancy, um, whether that's on digital stuff or um, access consultancy I do as well. And some of that money funds, I think all of that money actually helps fund the company as well. So, um, and then I kind of, I work part-time. I'm also a co-exec director at uh, DADA, the Disability and Deaf Arts Charity up in Liverpool. So that's three days a week for me is running Dada and producing both in person and digital stuff for them. And then the rest of the time is doing chronic insanity stuff and organizing work, rehearsing, writing, directing, running workshops, uh, things like that. It's for long. It's a lot. Um, I'm tired, but fulfilled, I think is the fair descriptor of it. Yeah. I think as your company is aptly named, it's chronic insanity. You do so many things, and I'm going to ask you in particular about logistics. Because obviously finding a place and kind of dealing with the dates and figuring out all of those annoying small things takes up a lot of time. And since you guys are doing 12 back-to-back shows, how do you deal with the logistics of that? Like, do you... Earlier you said that the plan was to kind of do a bit of logistics in the beginning of the month, or then the show was like in the middle, and then you start logistics for the next one. Before, how does that work out? Because I'm trying to to imagine it in my head, and I'm really confused. No, that's fair. Um, so I think it's interesting to break it down from year on year. We're in the middle of our third twelve shows in twelve months project. For our first one, we planned everything in advance. The twelve shows we were going to do in twelve months, we made a big chart which showed it every, broke the year down into weeks, and we figured out how long things would need. About half of those shows ended up not happening and being replaced by other shows. And there's a lot of recycling and turning over and killing your darlings, like I said, and having the core things and working towards them and 
replacing things as and when you don't get rights or as and when a writer needs more time or as and when just someone you don't fancy doing it anymore and you're it's a monologue so you can just make that decision it doesn't impact anybody else and you know things like that at the end of that first year i think we did 18 shows or productions in that 12 month period technically at least arguably maybe depending on your definition of a production but arguably at least 12 minimum but we did at least 18 bits and bobs um and then we from that point on we kind of had faith and we trusted ourselves and that a lot of it is a lot of it is chaotic a lot of things crop up that you don't expect but if you have if you trust your ability to kind of creatively solve problems and logistically work around things and if you come from a background of making work on a complete shoestring like we do um you know there's lots of projects where i don't pay myself there's lots of projects where we pay artists that we work with minimum salaries because according to equity writers guild itc you know we pay people the minimums for the work that they do the hours they spend working on us or the work they create for us we Making digital work means you don't have to rent a lot of spaces and rehearsal rooms, so you can save money there, and you can pay people and pay people well by doing digital stuff. People are rehearsing at home. But after one year, we were like, okay, we can do this. Maybe it was a fluke, though. Let's try and do it again for a second year. So our second year was trying to do it again. And I think we ended up doing about 24 productions, again, depending on your definition, but arguably at least 12 brand new things as well, plus some revivals from the year before and some other things that you might um or are about and argue the definition of whether it's a show or not, but 12 inarguably. And so far this year, um, we came out from Edinburgh about a month ago and at the end of the Fringe, we'd done 12 shows for the year. And so moving forwards, opening up a venue in Nottingham, starting the UK's first digital theatre-specific literary department and developing work through that and doing a few other shows and bits and bobs in Nottingham and in London, we've got another, we'll probably hit 18 again. Maybe we're hitting 20. I can't remember. I think we had it planned out. A lot of it is, like I said, there's a certain chaotic element, but knowing that the chaos isn't personal and going with the flow and, and having loads of ideas in the back pocket. So if something opens up, you can kind of jump in at the last minute. A lot of our work is quite lo-fi. It doesn't require lots of design. It, a lot of it can fit in a suitcase. And as so long as the people are free and in the right place, we can perform the show. Um, we rehearse very efficiently and very quickly. We do remote rehearsals on Zoom and then get in a space to save money on rehearsal space. And a lot of our associate artists trust us. And so if we come up with a weird way of doing a thing, they know that that's what we do. And they don't kind of um and ah, they, they trust us and they go along with it. And I don't think it's ever not worked out. Um, so I think it's a very, a very good series of things that all support each other. Some of them are things we've crafted and put in place. Others are accidents we've found along the way. And some of it is kind of just pure luck from a show by show basis, but they all kind of come together and rest on each other and end up supporting each other in that sort of way. Um, yeah. A lot of it is just kind of yeah, rolling with the punches is a very important, a very important way of, um, of making the amount of work that we make and always having being opportunistic and always having stuff in our back pocket so that, if, if an opportunity comes, we can do a show there and it happened quickly. We did a show in 24 hours this year because um, the story broke. There was a story about uh, the, um, the potentially sentient AI coming out of Google, Lambda, and they published a transcript and the transcript is a script. And so within 24 hours, an associate artist told us about this and we'd made a digital theatre piece where we had Nat, our co-founder, programmed... Um, lent their voice and we trained an AI to speak using Nat's voice. And then we had that perform the AI's lines in Nat's slightly Americanized voice. And I performed the researcher and we did that and just set that up in my bedroom, had Nat's voice move like a kind of image thing whenever it spoke. So we had a bit of kind of design and stuff going on. And then we just filmed it in one shot from beginning to end of me off screen, reading the researcher lines and a QLab file with 200 MP3s of AI-generated speech in it, triggering at the right point. I operated it and performed it, and then we recorded that and released that within yeah about 24 hours. So other shows have taken years to plan. We just did um, a show called Medusa Reloaded, which is a gig theatre show about the, the Medusa reclaiming her narrative. We've been working on that for best part of two years. So some shows take a really long time, and other shows are done in the blink of an eye. Um, but... Yeah, I don't think we've ever planned to do something and not done it. There's one show we were going to do last December. We haven't done it yet. 
but that's because we had lots of good ideas and needed more time to do them. That's the only thing that we've announced or promised or said we'd do and we haven't actually delivered yet. Everything else does eventually happen. Do you know, it's moments like this when I wish we did video podcasts because the range of emotions that Greta, I think, just went through after hearing, like, like, like t- t- turn around, turn around a show in 24 hours. That, that, um... yeah, the only thing I can think is, what time, when did you sleep? Uh... People often get frustrated by the fact that I have a very, I have quite a good sleep schedule and I don't tend to work evenings unless it's like the day before a show and I need to edit and render video. I work pretty solidly in a sort of between 10 till 6 unless we're performing or editing something. Yeah. That 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 is incredible. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, <damn. laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know what? You, usually, I have some form of like witty comment to follow up a story by this, but I'm genuinely in awe. Something that really interests me about the company is that you have recently, like, as of last week at the time of recording, you've recently opened a space in Nottingham called the Void. And to give a back, bit of background for anybody who doesn't know the space, this is like it's it's like a space underneath Nottingham City Centre, and it's like it's situated in caves, I believe. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Um. So, how did you go about like finding the space, and what would you say the process of like acquiring it has been for you? So we started looking for a space in January, February 2021. We started looking for um, a lot of shops and restaurants were closing in Nottingham as a result of the pandemic. And lots of places were open to reducing their business rates for giving um, new businesses meanwhile use of their space. I know that that's a big thing in London for things like Theatre Delhi or for immersive productions and things, but hadn't quite moved to Nottingham yet, but it was starting to. And so we were looking around shops and restaurants that we could hypothetically take over for a few months while there was a sort of some sort of rates holiday if we were in there cleaning them up, paying for the electric and the water. But a lot of the places would have not been left in a great state because people had been evicted from a lack of money and so they couldn't pay staff to, you know, do stuff. And also it was still, you know, late winter last year so it was all very covid and we didn't know if we'd actually ever be able to do anything in them so we sort of put a pin in the idea and had it as a kind of stretch goal when we were envisioning what to try and achieve this year and then to be honest out of the blue the venue that we've ended up setting up with uh, cryptology escape rooms reached out to us and said that they had a cave system in their basement a couple of rooms joined together and that they'd heard about us through the university um because the university of nottingham did a big immersive, um, a big kind of like using the skills from their computer science department to help local businesses with apps and developing technology solutions for their business. Big European funded project, which has gone really well called the Ledding Project. And we were getting mentioned as a part of that because I was a student out of those labs and because we'd been supported and had presented work as part of the project already. And this room... The escape rooms, cryptology, the owner Mark reached out to us and said that they had this kind of sub-basement full of caves and that they want, wondered if we wanted to do an immersive show there. And kind of on a meanwhile use basis, we'd give them a cut of any money that we made, a very generous cut, actually. Those are props to them for helping us be able to kind of afford to do this by doing that. And at the time, they would eventually take the space back in somewhere between two to five years, but we would help them workshop some of the issues with doing stuff in a cave like power or... Um, fire safety or any renovations that might need doing so that eventually we would do stuff and through that process figure out how they could better the case for themselves and then reclaim them in a few years time they offered us to do like one show and i think we counter offered with the idea of turning it into a venue because it was a thing that we really wanted to do um and they were very happy with that because i think it just meant there was more stuff was going to happen in the caves and more people would hear about them um Nottingham is, and I've, I've learned this fact, the city in Western Europe with the most caves. Um, there are almost any venue or pub or building has some sort of cave system underneath it in their basement. Like There's loads of them. There are touristy caves, the castle's covered in caves, loads of pubs have pub stuff in caves. 
Um, so it's not uncommon in the city for there to be caves to do stuff in, but we weren't aware of anyone who had set up a, like a permanent performance space in them before. Um, so that's how that all came about. They approached us and we thought that it was kind of just crazy enough to work. And then we ended up also getting some Arts Council funding. We have a producer that works with us called um, Lottie Holder. She's really good with Arts Council bids and has worked with us on a couple of things in the past. And um, we got some Arts Council funding to help kind of get us all the base stuff we'd need. You know, things like uh, waterproof equipment, uh, some cushions so people aren't sitting on cold, wet brick. Uh, and some uh, production budgets for the first few shows that we wanted to do there as testers. A digital theatre piece with screen, a more traditional sat-down performance, and an immersive promenade performance piece to kind of test out different use cases for the space. Um, and that's what we're in the middle of at the moment. The um, the idea of theatre like being underneath the city or in a cave system, I think at first it could be easy to confuse it as gimmicky, if that makes sense. Because, like, you know, like, at, at the end of the day, it is a space, you know. The the options it provides, especially the, especially the um, immersive aspects, that's something we're going to get onto a little bit in part two. Um, that's something that really excited me when I started reading up and learning a bit more about the space. The sort of ideas that... Um, you and the rest of the Quanic team were coming up with, like, that, I think, really allowed me to envision the space as not a sort of, um, like, again, again, like a gimmick space, but as a proper performative spot. Um, listen, we are going to take a break. We are going to talk a bit more about the void in part two as well as um chronic insanity's upcoming works in there hi guys welcome back i hope you've got your cup of tea or hot chocolate or water whatever you guys get in these breaks we're here with joe they never left <laughs> uh, as we said before the break we're going to talk a bit about the void so we've mentioned that the void is these really cool underground caves underneath an escape room, which is such a random and weird spot for you to find. And I feel like it goes so well with the whole idea of chronic insanity. It sounds like everything, every story you're telling me just gets crazier and crazier by the second. And the more I speak to you, Joe, the more I can understand why it's called chronic insanity. So anyways. <laughs> Uh, Penumbra is your upcoming piece, which is October's piece, because at the moment of recording, it's the 3rd of October for the viewers, so that they understand what's going on. Uh, and you, it's, first of all, what does Penumbra mean? So, uh, um, the word Penumbra is the word given to the sort of edge of a shadow, where it's still a shadow, but slightly lighter than the umbra or the centre of the shadow. It's essentially the kind of the part where it's both a shadow and not a shadow at the same time, where if you were moving into the shadows, you could still make a decision to move out of them. And that's sort of where the show will hopefully take people. So you've described this as an interactive horror theatre experience. And as we've said, it's, a, it's in the void. And this is your immersive piece. Am I, am I right in saying it? So this is the, one of the, as you said before the break, one of the three different experiments you need to do to kind of figure out and test the space and doing that. So how has the process of adapting the idea to the space been? Like, how was the whole, like, from idea to show? Sure. So I think for Penumbra, rather than adapting an idea to the space, we got into the space and we figured out which idea would fit. Um, I know I wanted to do more horror. I love horror as a genre. There's never enough theatre of it in spite of the liveness element being so brilliant and geared towards doing horror. It can only be snobbishness that there aren't more horror shows. When there are, they tour for ages and are massively successful. Ghost stories, Woman in Black, all sorts of things are have been going for, you know, ages because there's nothing else um, really filling in. So we knew we wanted to do a horror thing and really explore that far further. And 
The caves are also caves. They're dark. They're underground. They're oddly not quite as creepy as you'd expect them to be, but we can ramp that up with um, with tech and giving people limited access to lights um, and things so they kind of spend more time in the dark than they might otherwise want to. So yeah, and then we kind of got in the cave and looked at the space and tried to come up with um, an experience that would be kind of safe to do and would use all of the unique features of the space in a way that was kind of creative and interesting and allowed the audience to really explore the space and stumble across the story and then decide how involved they wanted to kind of get in, you know, in that story. Do they just want to understand it from afar and understand what's going on and watch it? Or do they want to get stuck in and be interactive? And then also what happens if you remove that choice from somebody? And that's, I kind of guess, where the horror comes into it, when the courage and the bravery of an audience is required, when they feel like they can be passive and then they're thrust into having to be active and involved, which is what they've signed up for it's what they know the experience is going to be it's interactive and horror but kind of maybe making it feel like it's not going to be quite as much as it is and then making it as much as it can be for people um is kind of where we're playing around with at the moment just out of interest then it's um it's just cropped up a question in my head um what would you say is the allure of horror as a genre to audiences like do you think there's something about like like okay like for example some people gravitate more towards comedy or or tragedy what do you think it is about horror especially as in this case for penumbra an immersive element that excites audiences horror taps into something really interesting i think it's a really interesting way of examining the world we live in and different cultures you can tell a lot about a time period and a place, a when and a where by the horror stories that are told from there. And while there's nothing wrong with comedy, obviously, there's nothing wrong with tragedy, there's nothing wrong with just straight drama, but horror kind of tries to, I think, more effectively and simply do something. I think it tries to, I think it can provoke more interesting responses from audiences. And there are obviously different types. There are some horror films that just jump scare. And that's not what we're doing. That's not effective horror. You know, that's if a comedian jumps in the audience and starts tickling them, they're laughing, but they're not laughing at the comedy. They are being made to laugh, like, physiologically. So we're not interested in just scaring people for the sake of scaring people. But using horror as a way to kind of examine stuff in the same way that sci-fi might, in the same way that fantasy might, you know, to to make a bit of the world more more different, more dark or more twisted, and then see actually is it this dark or twisted for people anyway? How does society lead to this point? What happens if this? How do people react under these new circumstances which are unpredictable and because of, you know, if something's scary, it's often because you aren't... If you get used to something, something stops being quite so scary. So horror is something that is unprecedented more often than not. Or horror is going back into the bowels of something you know is going to be scary or difficult or dangerous. Um, that's often where a lot of the courage is required. Um, lots of great horror stories have people finding themselves in a difficult situation, leaving it, and then realising they forgot to do a thing or having to go back into it. And that's what we really want to do with this experience. Um, we're planning on having that quality of it, where the audience can kind of have to... <laughs> make the decision to go back into the belly of the beast, as it were, and figure out so that they can really overcome. Because while horror is a genre for, like, passive media, like um, novels or TV and film or even maybe video games, although those are obviously more interactive, can maybe teach you something about the world or how can give you an idea of maybe, oh, well, this character's having to do this, I wonder what I would do. In an interactive experience, you're the one doing it. You're the protagonist. And so... I think it's a really good way of allowing people to kind of play through things in their head. We've done, we've played around with horror in a lot of different experiences in the past. We've done interactive and um, remote digital theatre that's used horror to try and help people approach things that they might have found difficult otherwise. We did um, an augmented reality audio experience as part of the BBC New Creative Scheme last year called Hairy Hands FM which was an interactive, it used like, um, it could detect when you were talking through your phone or your laptop, and it would, um, the hairy hands are a haunted pair of hands that haunt a stretch of road over Dartmoor, and apparently appear and grab your steering wheel and drive your car off the road. 
And the idea was that the audience would call into a radio station and they would hear the local legend segment and the radio station would get attacked by the hands. And then suddenly we'd use like spatial audio. So the hands would sound like they were in your room with you. And then you had to run to different rooms in your house and try and avoid the hands and eventually defeat them by flushing them down the toilet in the bathroom. And the idea was we wanted the audience to feel like the protagonist in their own sort of found footage horror film. Like they... But we wanted to give them a really difficult threat, something they had no knowledge of or understanding of how to defeat. And then at the end, we wanted them to defeat that. And this was taking place um, in the midst of the pandemic, when not only were the inside of people's houses really boring and ultimately familiar, so by jazzing them up, by giving them something a bit more adrenaline pumping would be interesting, but the idea of having something amorphous and terrifying and not knowing how to deal with it and eventually overcoming it and knowing, oh, okay, maybe this is a thing we can get through was something that we were interested in coming across. I don't know how she would really do that unless you're really getting somebody into... I think horror is very effective at riling emotion and if done very carefully and purposefully and not just for novelty's sake or for adrenaline's sake. I think you can really get help people... tackle with societal issues in a way that they might otherwise just sort of flirt with on the surface. I think it can really get people to kind of get to the heart of something and really understand it and prove something to themselves or realise and understand something about themselves more effectively. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you on that one. I think, um, like, just listening back to what you said and thinking it back to me, when it comes... I'm Personally, I'm not very much of a hover buff. Like, like anyone who can, who knows me, will know that I will be jumpy if someone claps their hands too loudly. You know, but I um, when I think about it, horror as a genre, when people go to see it, at least for me, I think that it's almost like, like a test, if that makes sense. Like as if, as if they want to be like, okay, well, how far can my nerve go? Or what, what's the biggest risk at play here? And, you know, anybody who does theatre generally knows that theatre and live performance is inherent risk. So it, it's it's interesting. It's interesting for, the, um, for them to be merged. And I think it's such a very simple, yet, uh, as I'm sure you can agree, easily underrated thing to merge horror and immersive together as genres. Um, I want to get back on track a little bit more with the venue for The Void. Um, So the last week, you opened up the space properly with a showing of a a show which I never thought I needed called What Really Happened to Vine. (laughs) And um, as I'm sure the name implies for the listeners, it's a piece of digital theatre surrounding the shutdown of online site vine so for the opening of the voyage joe how did you find the opening night and what is it you are taking away from what really happened to vine in relation to developing the work that will go on in that space so opening night of the voyage was really lovely we had um it was practically a sellout we had loads of people there some who were familiar with us and some who i don't think had heard of us before which is always a really lovely mix and we brought people down into the space and we sort of showed them around and gave them like a guided tour of all the different areas and then sat them down in our kind of performance space and projected the digital third piece onto the wall. It will also eventually be available on demand and online for people, but we're going to kind of, we're not going to directly release it. We're just going to kind of release it into the world for people to find and stumble across Um the show itself is like, it's set up like a Vine compilation and in just uses a bunch of regular recognisable vines. We then got some associate artists to film their own vines and we kind of put those into the mix to try and create a sense of we're not sure whether these are real or not and some are familiar but some I've never seen before. And then slowly a protagonist emerges and then slowly that protagonist in the kind of quest to um, to kind of stand out finds the void, finds our venue and finds these caves and starts exploring them. And then it kind of becomes a sort of found footage horror thing, but with these regular vines interspersed between shots of the cave and weird kind of creepy goings on to really create this strange mix of like, 
you want to pay attention and focus on this kind of story of this person going slowly and slowly towards something that you know is just inevitably not going to be very good for them. But also you have all this other distraction going on and all these other funny things trying to kind of rip you out of that. And so you really have to try and fight and decide if you're going to, which one of these you're going to focus on and which one, you know, are you just going to watch the, the vines that you know and love or are you going to try and follow the story and be invested in it? And that parodies and you know mimics a lot of online interaction and the ways in which a lot of things are kind of juxtaposed and awful and lovely things are put side by side. Um, and plus, I've just I've I've liked the idea of a short you know a Vine compilation is a very interesting medium in and of itself. It's a social network that doesn't exist anymore and yet has found a, continues a second life. It was obviously happening while Vine was still going on. Uh, but it's interesting to see which ones have survived and which ones constantly get put over and over again. Because obviously there were thousands, if not millions of vines. And yeah, I reckon most compilations use the same, probably less than a thousand, kind of mixed together. So there's an interesting way of like cultures coming up with their own base units of stuff, of story. Um, almost, you know, seven seconds is enough to set up and punchline something. And so it's like we have a set of individual units of story that are all seven seconds long and have all been made by different individuals and could hypothetically be arranged to tell a full story if you ignore some of the different aesthetics. And also as a lo-fi theatre company, I love the complete lack of aesthetic that little vines have. You need to be a different character, put a shoe on your head and now you're your mum. It's just a difference. There's a difference. I think that's that's really lovely to see and to see people embrace. And I know a lot of people with digital stuff do embrace that, likely. So... I have a lot of love for Vine and the sort of work that kind of came out of it um, and the, the sort of careers a lot of people have moving forwards as well. I follow a lot of people on YouTube still that I kind of know from Vine, but I wanted to play around in that space and I felt it was rife for something recognisable and then if something's recognisable, we want to try and do something unrecognisable with it to create that the biggest kind of tension and release that we can. I'm going to move on and actually soon... We're soon done. We're soon going to let you enjoy your night, Joe. <laughs> so, obviously, moving forward, like you, we've talked about what really happened to Vine, and we've talked about Penumbra. But do you have kind of a vision of the kind of work you'd want to program in the void? Is there like a specific genre you want to kind of match with the cave-like structure? Because as you've been speaking, it it's quite evident that like horror and the caves do kind of pair well. But do you kind of want to play on that or do you want to play on that and find ways to juxtapose it, kind of find a way to make the caves feel like a picnic day? I don't know. Yeah, I know that um, we kind of want to do everything and anything in the caves. We don't just want to stick to one genre of performance thing. And to be honest, though Nottingham is full of loads of really great venues, some of them can be difficult to get into and others are so busy they end up being difficult to get into with the kind of day-to-day -day running that they have to do in order to do the things that they, you know, are funded to do or the things that they want to do and have set out to do in their regular programmes. Um, which means that there's lots of people that want somewhere to do stuff and they don't have somewhere. So we want to open this space up to as many people as possible and that's part of the reason why we took it over and we want to open up to... Uh, you know, literally anything. We can do theatre and we want other people to come and be able to do theatre and live performance, but we want people to do some music in there. We want uh, art exhibitions, we want film screenings, we want uh, workshops and free writing and meditation, we want fashion shows and end-of-year exhibitions for the students at Nottingham Trent and for all the, you know, the design and courses that they do there. We want to kind of, yeah, have it used for anything and everything. So it won't just be a theatre space, it's very much a performing arts and an arts venue that just happens to be in a cave system. And so long as people want to give in to that, they recognise that it's caves. We haven't renovated them and turned them into a theatre. It is a cave that we have some lights and some speakers in. Um, if you want to do something that can fit in that space, if you want to use that as a creative problem to write something, to create, to devise something to fit in that space, you have a show that already exists in the cave and you're struggling to find a venue for it. You don't have to be from Nottingham. We have other companies from around the UK who are interested in showing stuff there next year. We want to kind of encourage you. I think a lot of theatre spaces are very neutral and very blank because people are used to or are trained to make work in those sorts of empty spaces and to build something. But building a show is loads of resources and energy and time and um, carbon and money and all sorts of things that we don't have as a company, nor do we want to necessarily spend on that. 
So that's why we like doing stuff in found spaces and site-specific work, and that's why we like doing digital work a lot of the time as well, because you don't have to be in a room that needs uh, rent and heating and other things. But the caves are actually so far underground, they kind of maintain a fair temperature. They're a bit humid, but other than that, if you've got work that can fit that space and you want to work with the cave, if you want to do something that kind of complements the uniqueness of the space, then, yeah, we're open for anyone to kind of make anything down there. But honestly, I've all I've just been thinking about is the sort of work that could just be programmed down there now that you're talking about it. Like, for, like um, this is completely off topic, but... Um, but but um like for example personally I'm a massive Shakespeare buff right and I'm just imagining um like the 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 um the the, 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 the oh god he can speak English today can't he the um the forest in as you like it just down in the caves like just like swirling through it going all around it you know I just imagine like such a such a unique twist on what we imagine as a traditional fitness space. And I do and you've really brought up a really interesting point about um how we as theatre makers are attuned to what a space is. Like like we are so very used to um our spaces being like a blank canvas and having that little bit of extra <laughs> pun relatively intended character in a space, I think really adds to the performance as a whole. I, um, but yeah, I think we have reached the point of the podcast where we do have to ask you, Joe from Chronic Insanity, as the name implies, what is the next stage? What can we expect to see from Chronic Insanity in the future? So for the rest of this year, other than Penumbra, which should hopefully be out around about Halloween, we are doing um, an immersive production of Medea at an art gallery in Nottingham in November. We're doing a kind of work in progress of a show by one of our um, commissioned writers as part of the digital literary department at Pleasance in London called uh, Batman, AKA Naomi's Death Show. That'll be kind of mid-November, mid-late, late November, I think. We're doing a two-night restaging of one of our Edinburgh shows, Some Other Mirror, by Laurie Owen at Nonsuch Studios in Nottingham um, in that November time. And we're doing a little mini tour of a show that we did at the Omnibus Theatre in London in May, which is going to uh, going up to Dada Fest at the Unity Theatre in Liverpool for late October, and then a few days later on the 29th of October, is going to be at the Nottingham Playhouse as part of Amplify Festival before we eventually, hopefully, tour that show next year further around the UK. Um, I think that's all that we're up to for the end of this year currently, but chances are I've forgotten something or something else will crop up. And moving ahead in the future, we've commissioned a bunch of really massively talented writers as part of the digital literary department and we'll be taking their shows and starting production on those in the new year. Um, I'm sure we'll be doing some stuff at other festivals. We'll probably be back at Edinburgh. I'm sure we'll be at Vault in London in January or March or at some point. Um, and we'll be, yeah, we'll be continuing to make more digital stuff and more in person and immersive work. And we're always happy to talk to people and to hear their ideas and to help people with bits that are difficult. Like we've we've had a lot of successful art council bids. We kind of know how to do that. And if people need help with that, we can help them. If you have an in-person show you want to make digital, that's our jam. We can help you with that as well. If Particularly if you feel like there's a particular digital audience that for whatever reason, there's a barrier to them seeing the show in person if you stage it in a venue or in an art centre or community centre or something. We will be doing more consultancy, I'm sure of it working with anyone and everybody that wants to kind of make their work more accessible from an ability perspective as well as a geography, te tech literacy, financial perspective. We want to really try and figure out... One of the things we set out at the beginning to do is to really take a big step back and look at theatre and performing arts and figure out what the actual problems were and the issues and how we could come up with creative solutions that really, really kind of 
unraveled the things that have been there for however long they've been there for and try and come up with new ways of doing things. And we knew that that would be completely thankless and we'd almost certainly not really solve anything, but we want, we needed to have a go. We needed to try. And there are so many issues, more than we could talk about, but um, we try our best to try and tackle things as and when we can. And that's a lot to do. We don't always do it perfectly, but we're trying and we're doing bits and bobs. So we're going to keep keep on keeping on and keep making work and just doing things differently and coming up with new ways of doing things and trying to make everything a kind of like a kinder, safer and more creative space for other fair makers to work in the UK. All right. Listen, Joe, thank you again so, so much for coming on. We really do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to come and talk to us. Um, Nottingham-based listeners, you can find The Void at 107 Upper Parliament Street. Um, Penem... Penumbra uh, opens around Halloween. Once we have um, once we have uh, tickets released, we'll make sure to include them in the link in the description for listeners listening to this once tickets are made available. And as Joe has said, The Void is currently programming work for spring and summer 2023. So if you have anything down there and you think the spice... The spice... The space, gee Louie, it has not been good for my English today. <laughs> if you think your work fits the void space, get in touch with Joe and the team at Chronic Insanity Theatre, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, Joe, where can we find you on your social pages? Um, you can find us by Googling Chronic Insanity or Chronic Insanity Theatre or searching them on any social media we're at um chronicinsanity.co.uk and you can get to all our socials from there or linktree slash chronic insanity gets you to everything as well um yeah all right once again joe thank you so much no thank you for having me this has been really fun thanks everyone thank you thank you And that was Joe from Chronic Insanity Theatre. You can find them and all of their relevant links in our episode description. Um, once again, for Nottingham-based listeners, you can find The Void at 107 Upper Parliament Street. Penumbra opens on Halloween, so keep an eye out on their social pages for ticket information. Once again, as soon as it becomes available, we'll make sure that there's a note in our episode description. And if you are a creative based in Nottingham or across the UK, even the world, if you want to programme your work for The Void, that submissions are open for the spring and summer 2023 season. You can get in touch with Joe and the Chronic Insanity team at chronicinsanitytheatre at gmail.com. But for now, we'll see you at the next stage 